accomplished by our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it was New Year's Eve of 1990. My dear old chocolate lab named Chief, my Uncle Steve and myself, had gone out to the Atchafalaya Basin, you know, the basin, for a quick duck hunt, most likely anticipating a good gumbo um, the next New Year's Day, good duck gumbo. And as usual, we were in a small aluminum boat, hunting the sloughs and the bayous of the basin, and as usual, not having much luck. And being that we were in this smaller boat and the wood ducks weren't flying down the sloughs and bayous, allowing us to take what's called passing shots, we decided to go deeper into the swamp and into the flooded woods to perhaps find better fortune. Well, this plan proved to be unproductive as well, due to the fact that our boat was powered by a particularly large outboard, in, outboard engine. Um, it would scare the ducks, any bedded ducks away before we were able to get on top of them. And being that we were having no luck, and it was starting to get darker, we decided to head back to the levee and ultimately back home to Lafayette to take part in some fireworks festivities. And as we started to hurry out, quickly navigating around the underwater logs and the trees, the boat motor suddenly stopped. You see, in our haste to get home, we had taken our boat over an unseen log and broke the propeller shear pin. Now, in accordance with their name, shear pins are meant to break when the propeller hits something hard as to, to not seriously damage the outboard engine. And any prepared boater would know that if you're going to go in the swamp, jumping logs, swerving around trees, you had better take extra shear pins. Well, that night, obviously, we didn't fall into that category of prepared boater. And as we were troubleshooting the motor, trying to figure out what went wrong, it got darker and darker. And we began to lose our bearing and ultimately found ourselves lost in the swamp at night on New Year's Eve. And as the night wore on with us trying to move the boat somewhere, anywhere, in hopes that we could find a way out, using duck decoys to, to, to paddle the boat, we had forgotten to paddle too, <laughs> pulling our tree, ourselves from tree to tree, there came a point where we found ourselves exhausted. And I remember hoping, um, and I remember the hope of getting home to start, uh, of getting home that evening started to fade from my mind. All those worst case scenarios that often enter a young man's mind when such situations started to fill my thoughts. You see, I had lost all confidence that by our own effort and skill, we would ever be able to find our way home. And throughout that dark night, I remember hearing helicopters flying over the basin. And I remember becoming hopeful, thinking, hey, Maybe those are search helicopters, and maybe they've spotted us, and maybe there's a crack team from the sheriff's office of rescuers that are ready to charge in, rescue us, and get us out of here. Bring us safely home. You see, in my mind, I had lost all hope that we would be able to save ourselves. The only hope I had left was that we would be rescued by someone else. I longed for that assurance that this rescue would take place. And just like those of us who have struggled with sin in our lives, who have always deep down inside knew that those things that we did and those things that we left undone would lead us to serious consequences, who in trying, be to, 
and who in trying to be good failed time and time again. And in that failure, we come to realize that we need a Savior who is willing and able to rescue us from the consequences of our fallen nature. And what we find here in these closing verses of Jude's epistle is that blessed assurance of a rescue. As we come to the end of our exposition on Jude's letter to the church, um, knowing from three previous expositions of this short letter, much of Jude's focus centered around the difficulty that has always faced the church, that is the difficulty of false teachers being present among us. There is now and there always has been and there always will be those who enter the church for their own nefarious reasons and seek their own gain, seeking to twist God's word, seeking to twist his truth in order to lead those who belong to Christ astray. And and it has been that way since the very beginning. We can look all the way back, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. We see the serpent twisting the word of God in order to lead our first parents into sin. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree in the garden, of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you, shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that if you eat, that if, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And anyone who's paying attention today can see that this kind of deception is so rampant in our churches today. We often hear false teachers around us asking questions that sound very, very similar. Does God's word really teach that we are made male and female? Does God's word really teach that sexual relations outside of mar- marriage violates his holy law? Does God's word really teach that the ecclesiastical offices of the church are reserved for men and men only? Does God's word really teach that we stand justified before God on the basis of faith alone through grace alone? The false teachers who had weaseled their way into the Jerusalem church to which Jude was writing were asking the question, did the apostles, uh, did the apostles of Christ really teach that as believers we're still required to keep God's moral law? But in the midst of this disturbing news, in the midst of Jude's strong admonition to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, we see that the brother of James frames his letter at the beginning and the end giving us some of the best news ever heard by mankind. In his introduction, we hear Jude, we, we, we hear from Jude that those of us who have been called into the church were loved by God. And it was God who, who will preserve us until the end, strengthening us in our assurance of eternal life. And here today we come to the concluding verses of Jude's letter. And in signing off, he is sure to frame the letter with the assurance that we have in Christ with one of the most repeated dioxologies of the entire Bible. Last week we saw in verses 17 through 23, we saw Jude giving us those imperatives, those practices that are necessary, necessary for those so chosen by God to navigate as pilgrims through this fallen world, filled with false teachers, navigating our way through these last times. 
And in the closing verses, Jude is encouraging us all to shift our focus from the difficulties confronting the church and to set our gaze upon Jesus Christ. Many of you probably recognize Jude's doxology as the verses that are so often read as our benediction used to conclude our Lord's Day worship here at Hope Presbyterian Church. Fitting words to remember, fitting words to hold on the forefront of our minds as we go out into the world each week and we seek to glorify God, as we fulfill our vocations and we seek to love our neighbors as ourselves. Maybe it'd be suitable now here for us to take a minute to gain an understanding of the meaning and the significance of the word doxology that appears so often in our worship bulletin, that appears every Sunday in our worship bulletin. This word is compromised of two Greek words. It's made up of these two words in Koine Greek, doxa and logos. In the Greek language, doxa means um, glory, splendor, and grandeur. Well, in the Greek, logos meaning word or speaking. Noah Webster's 1828 edition of the American Dictionary of the English Language defines doxology as in Christian worship, in Christian worship, a hymn and the praise of the Almighty, a particular form of given glory to God. It's quite telling that in the American church today, we have allowed those words of theological and doctrinal significance that we have traditionally used to become so de minimis in their objective meaning that we have to go all the way back to 1828 to find a definition that portrays the significant weight and substance of this word. As today we look at this doxology, this praise of the Almighty, found in verses 24 and 25, I want to focus on three aspects of Jude's last words. Words that offer believers meaningful assurance that the rescue that we so long for, the rescue that we know we need, has already been accomplished. And it has come. It has come in the person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Knowing and resting in that revealed truth is where we can find true comfort as we live these, the Christian life in these last days, as we wait for the return of our King. First, I want to focus on the revelation that God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, is able to keep us from stumbling. Second, that our Lord will present us blameless before his throne. And finally, that rescuing his people brings our Lord great joy. Let's turn to our Bibles now and to the epistle of Jude. Let's turn and look at, these, at the first of these points here in verse 24. Jude begins by making sure that we understand the comforting truth that our Lord is able to keep us from stumbling. Now, what exactly does that mean, keep us from stumbling? Is what Jude trying to teach here is that those who belong to Christ are prevented by God from committing any sin at all, ever? And if we would sin, that could possibly mean that we were no longer saved, no longer under the grace of God? Well, that would be quite discerning, wouldn't it? Being that we are all very aware that we likely sin more often than we would like to admit. It's that phrase here, more often than we would like to admit, that's so important. You see, leave, you see those living outside of the grace of God are mostly unconcerned with the consequences of sin in their lives. And if we adhere to a postmodern view of the world, the necessary end to such logic is that there is no such thing as sin. How could there be in a world where there are no absolutes? But for those of us that are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, 
Sin, be- sin becomes something that we know should not be. It's like that monkey on our back that we can never completely shrug off. And that's what leads us to cry out for a savior, to cry out for, the, for, for a rescue. That's what drives us to Jesus Christ. The King James Version, instead of translating um, the Greek word here as stumbling, translates it as keep you from falling, which I think better captures in English what Jude was actually saying. You see, what he is proclaiming in this doxology is that God will never allow us to fall so far into sin that we reach that point of no return, causing us to fall outside of the grace of God. Jude is making sure that we understand that our standing before God is not a matter of our own commitment. It's not a matter of those things that we do and accomplish, but it's a matter of the strength of God. And as we see beginning in the beginning of this letter, in verse 1, it is God who will keep us for Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul goes on to summarize this point when he's writing to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day, at the day of Jesus Christ. You see, loved ones, the Apostle wants us to be assured, assured that this journey that we have set up on as weary pilgrims through a fading evil age will end with us standing righteous before the throne of God. And that brings us to our second point, still here in verse 24. He will present us blameless before the presence of his glory. Now exactly what is Jude getting out as he sets such a high standard of how we are to be presented before God? The ESV translates here the Greek adjective as blameless. However, I prefer the King James, which uses the word faultless in English, without fault. Well, if we are to found to be without fault, that would mean we have to be perfect. And make no mistake about it, loved ones. This is not just hyperbole. In order to enter heaven, in order to stand uncondemned before a holy God, we must be perfect. Look no farther than one of the most quoted sermons in the Bible, given by Christ himself in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. The words of our Lord in verses 19 through 20. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus goes on to show us that it's not only our outward actions that condemn us, but it's also what's inside of our hearts. Verses 21 and verses 22 of the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, you you heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Verse 28, he goes on to tell us that everyone who even looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
And commanding us to love our enemies in verses 47 and 48, our Savior proclaims, And if you greet only your, your brothers, what more are you doing than others? than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And hearing these standards may force us, it may tempt us to hope that Christ did not really mean what he was saying. That he didn't mean to be so strict. Laying out standards that if we're honest with ourselves, we can never keep. Try really, really hard to be good. Okay, well maybe I can do that. Be perfect? That's asking too much. Especially knowing that being perfect means keeping every letter of, the, of God's law. Doing everything that the law commands and abstaining from everything that the law forbids. Even the law summarized in the form of the great commandment gives us, gives us a standard that should cause us to tremble. Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the, the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And hearing those words, if we're honest with ourselves, we'll take a step back and realize that we most likely break this command, these commandments every day. So how are we to have hope of standing blameless, of standing justified but before the throne of an almighty God? Well, to those of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ, those of us who know our Bibles, we would correctly acknowledge that on the cross at Calvary, the Son of God offered himself as a sacrifice in our place, suffering the due penalty that we deserved for our sins, paying the price once and for all for all of the sins that all those who belong to him would ever commit or ever have committed, propitiating the wrath of God against fallen sinners. But you have to realize that not only did he suffer in our place, taking upon himself the wrath that we deserve, but we are now able to stand before the Father because we have a righteousness that is not our own. As a pastor of mine used to explain it this way, in order to be blameless before a holy God, we need to get an A plus on the test. So we come along, we take that test, we get everything wrong. F, F minus, zero. But Christ comes along and through his passive obedience on the cross, he's able to take that failing grade and throw it in the trash, saving us from the expected consequence of our failure. But that's not all he does. That's not all that is required for us to stand blameless. He also comes along and he takes that test himself, earning a perfect score, A plus. And he says, here, Here's my test, but count this as Kenny's test. Count this as Pat's test, as Paula's test, as Frank's test. They get my test. They get a perfect score, the perfect score that I earned. Looking back to the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew 5, just before Jesus lays out the standards required to keep God's law, in verses 17 and 18, he says these words. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law 
until all is accomplished. Well, we know who accomplished that law. You see, through the act of obedience, through his act of obedience, the incarnate Son Son of God fulfilled every letter of the law with a perfect score, enabling himself to bestow upon us that perfection that we ourselves could have never earned, or that perfection that we could have never achieved, allowing us to stand justified before a holy God who says to us, Be holy, for I am holy. As the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Today in Sunday school, we heard, um, studying Jeremiah, we heard in, um, from Jeremiah, uh, Roger taught from Jeremiah thirty-three sixteen. Where does our righteousness come from? Jeremiah says, the Lord is our righteousness. It is his righteousness that is given to us. You see, we will stand blameless before God, not based on our own righteousness, but based on the imputed righteousness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Back again to the Apostle Paul. He sums this up so succinctly in Romans chapter 5, verses 15 through 17. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For many died through one man's trespass, pass. much more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free, but, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, speaking of Adam, Death reigned through, through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Some of you today may view this as just a, this doctrine of the justification of believers. They're the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. as just some futile theological argument, some debate that has no real bearing on the Christian life. In many ways, the modern mantra of the American evangelical church sounds something like this. Enough with all this doctrine. Just give me something that I can use. Give me something that helps me live my best life now. Something that that will help me to be all I can be. I need good tips for living. Unfortunately, that kind of attitude can often lead us to turn our gaze away from our Savior and to focus on ourselves to looking to what we can do instead of looking at what our Savior has done. Causing us to remove our gaze from Christ, focusing on ourselves is one of the most effective tactics used by the enemy. And that's why this biblical doctrine that we are to present it blameless before the judgment seat of God solely on the basis of the imputation of the righteousness of Christ has so often fallen under attack. It's the time of the Reformation in the 16th century Council of Trent. The Roman fathers would not accept that unrighteous sinners could be declared righteous while they were still sinners. They claimed that the reformers were presenting some kind of legal fiction. How could you declare someone righteous when they are in fact not righteous? The Protestant reformers, the Protestant reformers arguing from Scripture countered that while it was in fact true that in and of ourselves we were unrighteous, 
We were, however, covered in a righteousness that was not our own. Covered with the imputed righteousness. Clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And due to what may have been no more than a mistranslation found in the Latin Vulgate, Rome rejected the doctrine of imputation. Writing in the sixth, century, in the sixth session of the Council of Trent, which dealt with justification, canon number 11, if anyone said that men are justified either by the sole imputation of the justice of Christ or by the sole remission of sins to the exclusion of the grace and charity which is poured forth in their hearts by the Holy Ghost and is inherent in them, or even that the grace whereby we are justified is only the favor of God, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. This was a serious doctrine, and it came under serious attack. It was necessary for those who reject the truth that God has justified us by faith alone and through faith alone, and through, by, through faith alone, by grace alone. It was necessary for them to attack this truth because they knew it stood on that. In more recent times, we have seen that this doctrine attacked or dismissed by some who claim to be reformed, who were, reform, who were leaders in reformed denominations. You may recall, some of you may have, may have been long enough to recall when this doctrine came to the doors of this church. Many proponents of the news perspectives on Paul and the federal vision deny the necessity of the imputed righteousness of Christ to the believer. Instead, trying to insert works into the process of justification. And that is why, that is why if we were to heed the admonition of the brother of James to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints, we have to know and be able to defend what the Bible teaches about how we are made righteous before a holy God. We have to know our doctrine. We have to be able to recognize false teaching when it confronts us. We have to be on guard against any teaching that robs God of his glory in order to focus on ourselves. Realizing that any teaching that attempts to proclaim that Christ has done only some of the work required for our right standing before God, but has left some of it, to, some of, some of it for us to do on our own, is not good news, it's not good news at all. I know who I am, and having to rely on myself brings no lasting comfort. When we, find ourselves hopeless, when we find ourselves helpless, an incomplete rescue, it's no rescue at all. But in the gospel, we find really, really good news. That for those who believe and trust in him, Christ has already completed our rescue. Doing everything that was needed to be done to present us, present us blameless before a holy God. Enable him, enable him to proclaim as he hung on the cross at Calvary, as he took his last breaths, it is finished, securing for us eternal life in his presence. Remember this, loved ones. Remember this when you were so weighed down with the struggles of sin. Remember this when all around you it seems that the enemy is, enemies of God are gaining more and more ground each and every day. When the news that we consume gives us reason to despair, to lose hope. Remember, remember that the God who has already rescued you holds all things in his hand, and he is in complete control. He holds all things in his, in his hand, keeping you from stumbling. And at the end of this fading evil age, he will make all things new. Look here at the end of verse, Jude verse 24. 
brings us to our final point. The great news keeps getting better. The revelation that it gives our Lord great joy to rescue his people. As Harrison Perkins Perkins writes in his commentary on Jude, he says these words. Notice also that Jude was clear that our standing before God is not something that God gives us begrudgingly. We do not have to silk before God's throne with an embarrassed smile because of how good he has been to us. No. Jude wrote that God presents us blameless before him with great joy. Many of us who have raised children might be aware that sometimes it's necessary to use both sticks and carrots, as the saying goes, when keeping them on the right path. And sometimes when our children commit some transgression, although we would like to use a stick, we know that that particular situation may call for a soft hand. And we choose to use a carrot instead. And often when we realize that that carrot is necessary, we're not so happy with that approach. Part of us would really like to stick it to them. We do it begrudgingly. But fortunately for us, our Redeemer is not like us. You see, Christ is pleased to present us faultless before the Father. And it's so comforting to know that not only has our Lord rescued us, despite our transgressions, despite our rebellion against him, but it gives him great joy to do so. How's that for assurance? It gives him great joy because in eternity past, he has already set his love upon his elect. Twice Jude here in this letter refers to believers as those beloved by God. And because of the unceasing love of Christ, he went to the cross at Calvary for our sake and for our salvation, freeing us from the power of sin and death. And as we close today after hearing this great announcement and resting in these truths, Jude gives us the only appropriate response to such great news, to such good news. He ends here with verse 25. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen.